So I just kind of wanted to start with a, um, a little bit of like a mind experiment, kind of just get ourselves thinking about um, just imagination, just imagining something. If someone was to come in here who is quite famous, um, maybe it was like a politician, whether we like them or not, but like this is a this is a this is a high notch person, like in the public eye, or or an individual who's like a a, a well performing athlete or a celebrity. Just, I mean, you just imagine, even with a small group of people that we have, like, how we would treat that person. Like, we would be really excited. Um, we'd probably want them to sit by us. We'd be asking them tons of questions. Like, our hospitality would be going through the roof, okay, right? But in contrast, what if, especially as we get larger, um, we have more people, it's easy to sort of miss people, Think about how the difference of how we would treat someone who is just like quote unquote ordinary and they come in to visit. We wouldn't be like lavishing all of this interest upon them. Um, like, come sit by me. We want to give you the best spot to sit. Um, I want to know about everything about you. Like, oh, isn't it interesting? Like, how did you come to play for the Cowboys or the Packers, whoever it is? Or how do you, how did you get into politics? Or uh, what's it like, this or that? We would just sort of like, yeah, okay. Like, maybe we'd feel an obligation to say hi to them. But there's a difference that we would most likely uh, treat them with, the way we would treat them. Um, it's something bent in us. Or for whatever reason, there's certain criteria that we have, and we treat people differently based on those criteria. But just think about how much it would be, as well, going from just sort of, like, someone who's famous or something like that, to ordinary, to even someone who has, like, shabby clothing, like a homeless person. Maybe they smell... And we kind of want to, or they make us feel uncomfortable like a handicapped person. We feel awkward making eye contact with them. The people who are more vulnerable in our society, how would we treat them if they came in? I think all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we would recognize that even if we wouldn't want to, like we own that that's not a good thing, that there's probably at least a bent towards treating people differently, even if we're not aware of it. Like, we don't freak out. We freak out when we see a celebrity at uh, Universal Studios, right? But not when we see, like, oh, look, it's an ordinary person I've never met before. Um, so we treat people differently. And, you know, and that's kind of what James is hitting at today, a very similar circumstance. It's this, this thing that he calls partiality, where we treat people differently. And I want, I want us to start off just by reading chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. He says, My brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you sit over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. And are not the rich the ones who oppress you? The ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? 
If you really fulfilled the royal law, according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the whole law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And so we see here that James is attacking this sort of scenario that I tried to paint in modern terms of someone coming into our midst. And even if we're not thinking about it, like I don't think a lot of us would intentionally do this, um, but we just have this sort of bent in our sinfulness to treat people differently based on really superficial criteria, based on things that from a very Christian like from a Christian standpoint really don't matter. And this word partiality that he uses in verse 1, I want us to make sure we understand what exactly he's talking about. The word literally means to receive one by the face. Um, it's a word that, that's only found in the New Testament. They don't find it elsewhere. Um, and so it's kind of this New Testament word that means to, to, to treat someone based on just like how they look, based on superficial uh, criteria like their appearances, their face. And so the idea is to treat someone differently, to treat someone better than someone else, or, or the other way around, to treat people worse than others. And so James uses this illustration, um, whether this is something that's actually happened, or whether this is something that is similar to what happened, or he's just like addressing it as a hypothetical. This idea of a poor person coming in, and you just kind of say, yeah, sit over there. You know, nothing, nothing that would have been mind-blowing to that culture, like someone who's poor, sit at the feet. That's where slaves sat. That's where poor people sat. They didn't get to sit in the nice spots. So it's not like he, this is anything that's out of the ordinary, that this is something that would have been viewed as malicious. It would have just been viewed as normal. But nonetheless, he says, that's exactly what I'm attacking. It might be normal, but it's still sinful. And so we see that other translations, I'll just give you some of the things that they translate this as to help make sure we have the right idea. So like the King James, it, it puts this as respect of persons. Or other translations say favoritism. One translation says prejudice. We also have in our in the ESV is partiality, which is what I'll be using. Or we could say discrimination. And, and verse 4 is really illuminating as well, where he talks about, haven't you then made distinctions among yourselves? It's this idea of treating people differently and you're making distinctions among them that are illegitimate. Because he says that you're judges with evil thoughts. These distinctions are not legitimate ones. They're ones based on, on sinful uh, judgments, on, on illegitimate criteria. And what, what I want us to keep in mind here is that you'll notice that if you were here last week um, and going forward into next week, this is sandwiched, this chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, is sandwiched in between the past section, 1, 19 to 27, and then what follows, 2, 14 to 26, which are these passages about what are real religion, what are true religion. And what, uh, in other words, what is, what is authentic faith look like? What does it look like to be a true believer? Someone who, as in verse 27, someone who uh, keeps themselves unstained for the world and cares for the widow and the orphan and the vulnerable. Okay, uh, the same category of person here, the, the poor person, the person with shabby clothes that comes in. 
Okay, or in verses uh, chapter two, verses fourteen to twenty-six, he'll talk about what if you what, what do you do when someone says I'm in need and you don't actually help provide their needs? Does that faith do anything? So it seems like this section here is like a case study of where it's sandwiched in these two sandwiched in between these two sections on authentic faith, and it's like James is stopping for a moment and saying, "Let me give you a really good example of what I mean when I'm talking about faith." That's inauthentic. It's a faith that shows partiality. And this will be really important when we get to verses 12 and 13 later as we look at the feature of a genuine believer. And Drew's going to hammer this more next week. But I want to keep in mind that this is, this, is a, this is happening within that context of what authentic faith looks like. And not only with regards um, to how we treat the poor, I would say, someone coming in as a visitor with shabby clothing, as James says, but I actually think that the application of this text can go much larger. Because you'll notice in verse 8, he brings up the ethic of loving our neighbor. He roots um, this in this more expansive ethic of our love. Or as he says in verses 12 and 13, of showing mercy. And so we can actually expand the application here. Although he's focusing on like visitors coming in and how we treat them, I think we can expand it to all of our interactions with other peoples. Where love is not limited to just a visitor coming into our church, right? Okay, All of our interactions with other people. Whether we show prejudice to other people. Or partiality. Or even, I would say, how we structure our corporate church life. Um, like when we think of our philosophy of ministry, how we structure ourselves, this text has a lot of implications for us. Do we structure ourselves in the way that demonstrates partiality to specific people? Or even, I would say, um, I would even say social implications. Like I know this is addressed for the church, and sometimes we want to say, well, this is for the church, it's not for society. But if it's an ethic that God would have us to do, we certainly would like to see that for the benefit of our society. God's ethic for us is his ethic that he, would, that he would love to see lavished throughout all society for its own welfare. And as people who want to see, uh, seek the welfare of our city, as Jeremiah says, we should be difference makers in seeking to see partiality eliminated, eliminated in different areas of our society. And so I want us, as we go through, I want to just tip us off to some of the applications that this text might have. Because what we're going to do is we're going to look at James's three reasons for why we should resist and avoid partiality, the problem with partiality. And I just want to tip us off to some of the examples and give us a taste so that these things are in the back of our minds so when we park and talk about some of them, we kind of keep the application focus there. So, of course, we have visitors, how we treat visitors. Um, When we have people come in who might be the quote-unquote unlovable types, the people we're not, or just the people we're not inclined to like be friends with um, and reach out to normally. But also economic status, like uh, people who are poor. Like, Do we show partiality to the people who are rich? I mean, maybe some of us actually show partiality to people who are poor and despise the rich, but typically speaking, James is saying it's the other way. But how we treat people based on their economic status, how we treat people based on their educational levels, in certain contexts having higher degrees will earn you more uh, respect and better treatment. Or race, which is like the obvious one that we are all going to think of, right? Especially in our context right now. Or gender, even as we think about how we treat people of different, like males and females, and, and some when we make illegitimate, we have illegitimate partial treatment. Um, we could think of single people versus married people. 
do we marginalize single people? Um, and it could go the other way in some contexts, I suppose, too. But Or the elderly. How do we treat the elderly in our society? How do we treat the elderly in our church? How do we treat young people if we were, if we were a church of old people? But we're a church of young people, so we think of it the other way around. Immigrants, refugees, um, I would say the handicap as well, people with mental illnesses. I want us to keep all of these sort of, just, we're just I'm just giving you a sample platter, to keep these in mind as we go through. We're going to look at three of James' reasons of why he says partiality is something we must resist. And he begins, number one, the first reason, is that partiality is incompatible with gospel faith. That it's incompatible with gospel faith. So look at verse 1 that we've already read. We'll read it again. James says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. No partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The assumption here is that partiality is inconsistent with faith in Christ, with, with who Christ is and what he's done for us. So in the gospel, we have been shown incredible mercy that we didn't deserve. Okay, and, and the, so the gospel that, that, that we were before God, we're completely and utterly helpless before his judgment that we've sinned and that therefore we are accountable to him as our creator and we face the just judgment of our sin, his wrath. But in Christ, Christ has taken our place. He's borne that wrath so that we can stand before God as people with a verdict in his judgment of innocence of not guilty. That's mercy. I mean, and we need, we need to be reminded of that because it's so easy for us to just like wrote, we know this. But just think about, we, we don't deserve any of that. The amount of mercy that God shows us in the gospel, that, that he actually became a human being to take on our sin, to take on death and destroy it for us. And, and when we think of partiality as a display of lack of mercy... We ought to be the people, when we've received such mercy in the gospel, how can we then not show mercy to someone else? How can we show partiality? How can we treat people with such unkindness? And so he sees that. How can you hold partiality with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? It's incompatible with the gospel that you yourself have embraced, the, the mercy you yourselves have received. This sort of partiality is inconsistent with it. But also you'll notice that how he defines partiality as this making distinctions, he says in verse 4. Making distinctions among yourselves along these illegitimate lines. He, I would think he would say, and what he's implying here is that this too is inconsist inconsistent with gospel faith. With the nature of what the gospel is. What Christ has done for us. And think about this, okay? So the gospel comes in and it says... You're in, you, are, you are utterly sinful. There's nothing that you can do to save yourself. Okay? And you're no different than anyone else on that plane. It's not like somehow you, can, you have something to boast over here. You, you, you're, you're a pretty good person. Okay? We like to compare ourselves to others. Well, I'm a pretty good person, so I kind of have something to boast about. The gospel says, no, you cannot earn your salvation at all. It levels us in that sense. We all, think about the Lord's Supper, we all come to the table with empty hands. 
We all come needing a Savior. And it's a common Savior. It's a common salvation. It's not that some of us are better than others and we get 80% salvation and we do the other 20% and someone else is just so detestable they have 100% salvation. No, we're all completely leveled here. We all desperately need salvation. So when we make such distinctions between people and we treat people differently, we're actually acting inconsistent with what the gospel says of us. That we're all on the same level playing field before God. And especially as believers, that we all have the same Savior. And so, I think of just a couple examples that seem, that seem more obvious to me. Is the, the first one is obviously race. Um, and just our, our less than... Um, our less than pristine history when it comes to race with the church. That, that, that what Paul would say, that, that how, it's, how, how we've treated race and how Christians have at many times not spoken up against racial injustices, um, have actually been in favor of slavery, and even now when we're still wrestling through things. Um, Galatians 3.28, how the gospel is actually inconsistent with that. Galatians 3.28 would say that in Christ there is no Jew nor Greek. That we're all come to Christ completely needy, 100% needy on the same level playing field. Or Ephesians 2 talks about how we're reconciled to one another in Christ. And so when we think of the broader church, uh, Martin Luther King said that the most segregated uh, time, in, time in, our, in our week was 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. That churches are so segregated. Um, what kind of testimony does that say to the gospel? A gospel that does not know racial boundaries, and yet our churches do. It's a mar on our testimony. Ephesians 4 says, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, and then we come to racially segregated church, and we're like, ah, not one church. Two churches, three churches. What does that say to the gospel? And James would say that that sort of partial treatment, that sort of making distinctions, that even happens on this very corporate level where we have churches that are racially homogenous, where actually statistically churches are more homogenous than the neighborhoods are located in. So even if we say, well, America's very segregated, but we're actually doing worse than our neighborhoods. This is a mar to the, test, to the testimony of the gospel, to what we claim the gospel does, that the gospel levels us and says, we all come to Christ needing salvation. We all have the same Savior. We all have the same Savior, but we have to meet in different churches. And so practically, as we try to be a church that will reflect this and seek to bring people of all different backgrounds, that means very practically we're going to have to be willing to make, um, we're going to have to be willing to adapt we're going to want to be a church that reflects the different cultures. Um, so I've talked to like some of my friends um, of my, who are minority, ethnic minorities. And one of the concerns they always have with churches that try to bring these things together, different people groups together, um, is that it often just becomes minorities have to assimilate to the white culture. So very practically, we're going to have to, if we're going to do this, we're going to have to reach into areas that might not be our demographic, we're going to have to say, if the gospel actually goes into these areas, we're going to have to do that. If the gospel reaches all people, then we need to be reaching all people. And then, very practically, we're going to have to be able to, we have to be willing to make compromises. We have to be willing to adapt 
we have to be willing to do things that might not be our cup of tea. But also this comes into other areas as well. When we think of segregated churches, we can think of churches that are very segregated in terms of economic status, where it's all, not thinking of, the, of racial things here, but just all poor people or all rich people. The gospel does not, is not just a gospel for the poor, and it's not just a gospel for the rich, so why are our churches so segregated along those lines? Or even age. It'd be really easy for us, and this is something we're going to have to watch out for, for our church to become all young people. We need to be a church so that if the gospel reaches old and young alike, that that's actually reflected in our constituency, in our membership. Or even a subculture, that we don't become like a hipster church or something like that. That the gospel is not just for hipsters, but the gospel can bring people together who are not maybe necessarily the same and wouldn't normally be friends, but because like we have the same exact faith, I might not be friends with you outside of this context and apart from the gospel, but because we have the same Savior, now we're friends. We have that commonality that crosses those sort of barriers. And so James would say that partiality is inconsistent with our gospel faith. It's inconsistent with the fact that we have been shown so much mercy. How can we not show mercy to others? But also it's inconsistent with a gospel faith that levels us and, and destroys these sort of distinctions that we so easily make. It's a gospel that unites us and brings us together around a common Savior. Secondly, James brings up the nature of the poor and rich as a rebuff to partiality. He brings up the nature of the poor and the rich. And so here he's attacking partiality, this distinct, distinct, uh, distinguished treatment according to superficial realities like being poor and being rich. And his argument is this, because of how God has treated the poor and how the rich have treated God's people, we should not be partial. It's ridiculous to be partial because of how God has treated the poor and how the rich have treated God's people. So first we see that God has favor towards the poor. Verse, uh, verses 5 and 6. He says this, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? And heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Has God not chosen these people, this doctrine of election that we've been talking about, where God, is, uh, God stands behind the salvation in eternity past choosing people? Has God not chosen to save mass amounts of poor people? Making them heirs of the kingdom, granting them faith, making them rich in faith. They might be poor in the world standards, but they're rich in faith. And, and and what he's tapping into here is this broader theology that we see throughout Scripture, where God is one who identifies himself with the poor. Because God is someone who loves justice, and oftentimes the poor in this world, are, are um, they suffer injustice. To have money in our world means to have power, and to have power means you can use that power to suppress the people who don't, so you stay in your position of power, so you stay in your position of wealth. We know this is still true today. Um, that was the case equally, if not more so, back in the time of Scripture. And so God, we see throughout the Psalms, he identifies himself with the poor. So Hannah, in her prayer in 1 Samuel, speaks of God as someone who lifts up the poor. Jesus comes on the scene in, in the Gospel of Luke and says, I am announcing a gospel that is good news to the poor. And, and then also in Luke, I believe it's in chapter 6, he said, Blessed are the poor. God is someone who identifies himself with the poor. He cares for the poor. He shows concern for the poor. 
And we know this just from our human experience as well, that that this idea of has not God chosen the poor, we know that meant that, that for whatever reason, poor people, people who are down and out, people who are vulnerable, are much more open to receiving the gospel than rich people. It doesn't mean that rich people can't be Christians, obviously, but as Jesus said, it's very true that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Or when Jesus is talking to the rich young ruler who says, what must I do? And Jesus like, sell all you have. It says that the rich young ruler went away sorrowful because he had many possessions. I think it's because rich people have, it's easier for them to have a sense of dependency. They, there's not that sense of hopelessness as much um, just based on like their physical circumstances. Whereas poor people, they know their need. They feel it every day. And it gives them a greater disposition towards, towards the things of God. And so we, we see this from a, both a theological perspective of God's concern for the poor, but also just we know this kind of from our, our experience. And James's point is that then this shows that God has favor towards the poor. God's election and salvation of poor people stands as a powerful testimony of God's attitude towards poor people. It's blatant evidence of God's deep regard for the poor. And so his point then is if we're going to show partiality to poor people, okay, get this, like this is huge. If we're going to show partiality to poor people, we're actually a living insult to the grace of God. Those are the people that he cares deeply about. He has a special regard for the poor. And our inclination is to have a special regard for the rich and to dishonor the poor, as James says. But in doing so, we actually are a living insult to the grace of God. To dishonor them, to insult them, is to insult the very God who favors them. And I would say that this isn't just the poor, either. This is all people who are of, of, of categories that we're just not inclined to. So, like, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, and then if you go to 26 and following, we looked at this on Thursday, um, it talks about, has God not chosen those who are weak in the world? Not many of you are rich. Not many of you are noble. But God has chosen those who are weak in the world. So we can broaden this, not just the people who have, who are economically poor, but people of all sort of categories that we might be more inclined to despise or just not treat as well. We're, we're more inclined to treat less favorable, favorably. These are the sort of people that God cares about. Because God is a God who cares so deeply about justice, and these are the sort of people that suffer at the hands of injustice, he cares so deeply for them. And when we don't care for them, we insult his grace. We insult his care. And so I just want to ask, are we blind and inconsistent to God's attitude towards these sort of people? Um, Do we demonstrate in our own lives, in our own hearts, our own affections, this sort of care for these people? So we think of the poor, we can think of the homeless, um, we can think of the elderly who are often marginalized in our society. They're quite vulnerable in our society. We can think of the disabled, the mentally ill. How do we treat them? Do we, as James would say, do our actions in effect dishonor them? And do they fly in the face of God's care for them? But also he continues that, okay, God has concern for the poor, but just the basic reality of the rich um, just the rich. Look at look at verse the ha- second half of six into verse seven. He says, "Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called?" 
I mean, these are the people that oppress you. These aren't honorable people. Why in the world are you showing favor to them? He's not, I mean, he's not saying, like, let's be clear. He's not saying, okay, God shows favor to the rich and poor, or, in the, or favor to the poor, sorry, and the rich are people who oppress you, so be nice to the poor people and treat their rich like jerks. Of course he's not saying that. Jesus, James is steeped in Jesus' theology, and Jesus would say that we're to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. His point, though, is that if we're going to treat people partially, riches are like the stupidest reason. Why would you, if you're going to be partial, why would you be partial to rich people? It's a ridiculously dumb reason to show someone favor. It's the rich that in general oppress you and disrespect your faith. And it's the same today. That the rich are those, generally speaking, not all rich, but we do see that generally speaking, rich people are people uh, who have power. And, and when with power comes corruption. Um, the ability to hold that power and to oppress those and suppress those who don't have it to keep their position. And, and so it's ridiculous and ethically, just ethically misguided to show favor to the rich at the expense of the poor. And so, I mean, we see this today too. We can, not just in terms of oppression, but even just our, we have this inclination in our culture. We're just so celebritized. We love celebrities and we ooh and ah over celebrities. But when you actually step back, um, these are actually often some of the most morally corrupt people in our society. We don't ooh and ah about them because they have some sort of outstanding quality. We ooh and ah about them because they're like in a film. Um, we ooh and ah because they're rich and famous, and I guess we kind of like the idea of being rich. But these are very, I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, these are misplaced values. That we get really excited about these people, um, especially, like as some special sort of category. Um, we should love all people, right? But like for some reason we're especially attracted to these people. Why are we especially attracted to them? Because of their riches, because of their, their fame. And these are just trivial characteristics that as Christians should not, should not bring us to the point of favoring them versus other people. But also I think, so we have this sort of ooh and ah tendency, there's also a tendency we have towards kind of wanting to get the rich and powerful on our side, right? Okay, We can imagine, and I think this might be kind of what James is getting at here, where you can imagine the, the audience that James is talking to, which is a very... Uh, poor, very largely poor and oppressed group, and they're kind of thinking, you know, if we could only get the rich on our side, we're being persecuted, we don't have a lot of money, we're day laborers, as we'll see, I think it's in chapter 5, and we're not getting paid, like, what if we could get, what, oh my goodness, a rich person comes into our group, what if we could, like, win them over, they could help make things really good for us. We could get them on our side, or more realistically, maybe we should get on their side. And they could get rid of some of this persecution. And I think we do a similar thing today. Where we're, we, we bend over backwards, and you think about this even in politics right now. Where we bend over backwards and we compromise our values and our Christian convictions to get on the side of the powerful. Thinking that somehow, like, okay, I know... They don't represent our values. I know they're hardly even close to Christian in their morals. But maybe if we could just get them on our side, they could make things good for us. Maybe somehow this will work out. And we compromise ourselves. 
we have this inclination, this, this, this draw towards the rich and powerful. But this is not the way of Christ. The way of Christ is, is not through, is to not seek influence and seek our better, betterment through power plays and through money and compromise, but through self-sacrifice, weakness, and maintaining our integrity. James attacks one of our primary bents towards partiality that we know all too well, this rather ill-founded favor that we have towards, towards the rich. And so to recap, in these verses 5 through 7, he says we must, we must care, not that we are supposed to somehow treat the rich really, or the poor really well and start treating the rich unkindly, but we need to treat all people kindly. Partiality towards the rich is just ridiculous, but especially because of, this is a superficial reason, but we should especially care for the poor because of God's concern for them. God's special concern for the poor because of his concern for justice. And thirdly, we see his third reason in verses 8 through 13 is just the severity of partiality. How severe James understands partiality to actually be. So read verses 8 through 9 with me. We'll go through this two verses at a time. He says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Okay, so like, just stopping a moment, it seems, at least to me, it seems weird. Like, why, James, why are we bringing up love now? Okay, if you fulfill the royal law, love your neighbor. I thought we were talking about partiality. So what's all this love? Why are we talking about love now? Or if you go down to verse 12 and 13, he's talking about mercy. Why love and mercy? I thought we were talking about partiality. Okay, the reason, though, that he brings up love, the reason he brings up mercy, is because James sees that at the root of our problem with partiality is a problem with our love for people. We don't love people enough. You know, we're really inclined, like some people we, we can really treat easily with favor and kindness. We just have a natural bent. We click with them. And it's like a compatible friendship, we might say. But there's other people who we just find, like, detestable or just, like, uncomfortable. Um, we actually, when we don't treat them well, and we just treat the people well that we like, it's an issue with our love. We don't love those people enough. We're not reflecting God's love for them. So our, so our claim to, follow, to be followers of Jesus is actually called into question because Jesus' royal law, James says, is that you will love your neighbor as yourself. If you really fulfilled the royal law, love your neighbor as yourself, our claim to be a follower of Jesus and follow his teaching is hollow. It rings hollow when we show partiality. How can you say to be a follower of Jesus and have this authentic faith to truly follow him, to do not hold partiality as you hold faith in the Lord of glory when you're going around and actually violating the central teaching that Jesus taught us. And I think one of the reasons that that's, that's, that's hard for us is because we don't think of partiality as that big of a deal. When we treat some people more kindly than others, we just don't think of it as a big deal. But, G, or, but James is actually saying, no, that actually goes back to like the biggest ethic Jesus gave us, to love our brothers, to love ourselves, to love our neighbors as ourselves. And I think this, is, this, has, this has really good application even for like what we might call cliques, where there's people that, we're, that we gravitate towards and we're more attracted to, where 
that's like all fine and dandy, and, and we're, we can be really good friends with other people, but we have to watch out that we're treating all people with kindness. That we're treating all people with kindness. Because what James would say that is partiality when we don't treat people well, when we treat other people more favorably. It's a problem with the fact that we don't love them. And, and as we said before in verse 2, where God has actually, God has actually made a testimony towards his favor to those people by saying, I've saved them. Like, I love these people. I love these sort of people. I care for these people. And when we show them partiality, we're not reflecting God's heart. It's a problem with our love. We don't love them enough to actually treat them with kindness. And so because partiality is a problem with our love, partiality is actually a much bigger deal than I think we typically think of it as. You might say that fulfilling the command to love your neighbor, we might say we're fulfilling that command to love our neighbor, but James says if you were really fulfilling this law, you wouldn't be showing partiality. If you show partiality, you might not think it's a big deal, but you're actually violating the law. And, and, and it, we could go back to verse 5 where James says that we dishonor the poor man. Like, they might have been, like, think about that, okay? So, so a poor person comes into their midst and they say, sit here on the floor. That's like what you did back then. It wasn't a big deal. Like, they're probably not thinking anything of it. And James is like, you just dishonored the poor person whom God chose. So some of this is that we just don't, I don't think we take these actions, this partiality seriously enough. We just don't, we just kind of blow it off like it's not a big deal. But when he says dishonoring, like that's a super big deal. It sounds actually very active and intentional and malicious. And we kind of just treat it like it's no big deal. It fits our culture melu. It fits kind of what the expected norms are. But James is saying we don't go by our culture norms. We go by Jesus' ethic to love one another as ourselves. And so part of the challenge for us is not just in this text, is not just do I show partiality, but am I someone who thinks it's as big of a deal as James does? Like, do I get as riled up as James does when someone is just, like something as sort of small as, here, you sit by me over here and you sit on the floor. Like, yeah, that's mean, but that's not, like, we might say that's not that big of a deal. James certainly thinks it is. Am I the sort of, sort of person that gets that riled up over, that, 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 that sees it as such a violation of God's law, of God's love for people? Would I react as James does and assess it as, as something that is this egregious. And what I actually notice, he doesn't just get upset about it and, and think it as something that's terrible, but he actually goes out of his way to write them about it. He includes it in his letter. Would we speak up about it? Are we the sort of people who speak up about things like this? Continue on in verses 10 through 11. He says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for it all. Why? Because for he who said, that is God who said, the God who gave the command, do not commit adultery, is the same God who also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've com- you become a transgressor of the law. Okay? In other words, it's the same lawgiver here. You might be violating different laws, but those laws are sourced in the character of one lawgiver. He who said this is the same guy, the same God, who also said this. And so James's theology of sin, it pushes us to regard sin in terms of its relationship to God. Our normal way of thinking is kind of like, okay, there are certain sins that are worse than others. Partiality, not a big deal. Murdering, adultery, big deals. 
And on the one level, that's kind of true, right? Like, there are sins that are worse than others. No one's denying that. But what James is doing here is he's linking it all back to the character of God. And he's sort of leveling it out. All sin is against the same lawgiver. It's against God. And thus all sins, although some sins are worse, some are worse than others, no doubt. Some are, some things are, maybe we might say are more severe. Because all sins are against God, there are no such thing as casual, non-egregious, no big deal sins. So if one sin is worse than another, it doesn't mean that somehow the other one is not a big deal. They're not to be measured against uh, they're, they're this, our sins, sorry, are the ones that they're to be measured against the one we're actually sinning against, which is God. And we understand the beauty of God, His claim as our Creator, um, His claim as our Savior. Every sin, even something that we might think is so tiny and so insignificant, like partiality, is actually a sin against Him. It's cosmic treason. It's not to be taken lightly. And so the same God that stands behind the laws, do not murder, do not commit adultery, these things that we understand to be big sins, is the same God that we would violate when we show partiality. And so it's a big deal. James is saying partiality is a violation of God's law, and God takes it quite seriously, so seriously that his judgment is coming for the partial. Look at verses 12 and 13. He says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We will all be judged by God, his point is. And those who do not show mercy, that is, those who display partiality, them will themselves not receive a merciful judgment. If we don't show mercy, we will not be shown mercy in God's judgment, his point is. And this fits with a bigger theology um, throughout the New Testament and throughout the Old Testament even, where we, we think of statements like in Matthew 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. It's the merciful who will be shown mercy. They show mercy, God will show them mercy. Or Matthew 6, where Jesus says, If you forgive others your trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Or the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus says, Forgive our debts as we forgive others who trespass against us. This aligns with this common theme in Scripture, that how you treat others will be how you will be treated in the judgment. Where Jesus says, Don't judge other people. Uh, watch out how you judge them. Because with the severity that you judge, you yourself will be judged. Or we think of the parable of the unforgiving servant, where there's a story, if you remember the story of the parable, where the guy, he owes someone a great amount of money. And the king, or whoever the guy is, whoever the ruler is, I don't remember the exact details, he forgives him the debt, right? And then he goes out and he's like, comes to find some guy who owes him some small petty amount. And he's like, give me all the money. Well, what happens? He gets thrown in jail. He's like, the, the guy who forgave him is like, what? Like, I just gave, forgave you money, and now you're, you're demanding it from someone else? And so Jesus closes that parable by saying, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother. That if you're an unforgiving person, you're not going to be the person that themselves finds forgiveness 
at God's judgment. Or we think of Matthew 25, this, where Jesus talks about the judgment of the sheep and the goats, where there'll be many who said, Lord, Lord, did I not do X and Y and Z in your name? And Jesus says, well, when I was there, how did you treat the poor person? Did you, did you give them a cup of water? Did you take care of them? That's how you've treated me. And so you'll be cast into outer darkness. The ones, the sheep, the ones who are treated favorably at that judgment, they, they didn't even realize that. They, they, they're like, Lord, when did we do this for you? Lord, when did we do that for you? He says, but this is how you've treated me, how you've treated the poor person, how you've treated the person that I identify myself with. And so we see that how we treat others, there's this theme, that's how we will be treated in the judgment. And, and I know immediately we're like, okay, but how do we square that with salvation by grace, right? Okay, am I somehow earning my salvation, that I, that I show mercy to others and therefore I earn a merciful judgment, I'm earning my forgiveness? How, what makes this intelligible? Like, how do we put this all together? And what I think we'll see is what makes this understandable is the transforming nature of God's grace. This is something that Drew will talk about. He talked about last week and he'll keep talking about next week. Is that salvation is 100% by God's grace. His doing. It's of His initiative. Nothing where we can say, yeah, that was me. I contributed to that. Nothing where we could say something I've done or something about me in any way made this salvation happen for me. Where I'd be able to say, I deserve salvation or I've earned it or I've achieved it in any way. Salvation is entirely by God's grace. It's by His favor. It's free. It's not something that we can earn or deserve. He undeservingly gives it to us. But at the same time, that saving grace that He freely gives us, that we don't deserve, that we don't bring for ourselves, is a transforming grace. The fact that according to Scripture, this salvation grace also necessarily involves transforming effects of grace. A grace that not only forgives us, but also changes us and produces in us good works. This makes understandable and intelligible the Bible's teaching. Like here, that although we are saved entirely by God's grace, at the end we will also be judged according to our works, according to our life lived. Not that somehow in any way our works um, or our transform, transformed life earns us salvation, but that it serves as a confirmation or validation of the presence of God's saving grace in our lives. It will say at the judgment, this is the effect of God's saving grace in one's life. And so he assumes this elsewhere in the sandwich portions, which is why I said like it's important that we understand that this is coming in between the previous section in this falling section on, on authentic faith. This is what authentic faith looks like. It's someone who doesn't show partiality. It's someone who shows mercy and cares for the vulnerable. The people we typically shy away from and show partiality to others. And so one of these examples of grace produce, of the grace produced effects in our lives by which we'll be judged is how we show mercy and love others. And so as such, Jesus and James can say this, those who show mercy, they're the ones who will be shown mercy in the judgment. And all this brings us back to the point where we, where we have to sit and realize and acknowledge the seriousness with which James takes partiality. It's a measure by which we will be judged. It's a measure of authentic faith. 
this is what true saving faith looks like. And this pushes against our... I just think we typically think partiality is not a big deal. Like how we, we just treat other people, we treat people differently based on these superficial realities. And James says, no, it's a measure of what it looks like to be a true Christian. Someone who is actually a Christ follower and says, I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. And so we must avoid partiality in recapping what we've talked about because it's inconsistent with gospel faith. The gospel that levels us and puts us on common ground. It's inconsistent with a gospel faith that showers us with mercy such that we can't, we can't not show mercy to others in turn. We, have, we must avoid partiality because of God's favor towards those to whom we often show partiality, that we, to whom we often marginalize, that we're actually insulting the grace of God and God's care for them. And we must avoid partiality because of the seriousness with which God takes this sin as a demonstration um, as demonstrated in his strict judgment to those who show it. And so we've kind of, I've, I've kind of scattered some applications out throughout, and I've mentioned some at the beginning, but I just want to revisit that I don't think we just, we just should seclude this application to how we treat visitors who come in. Um, it certainly has to do with that. How are we going to welcome people as we, as we see people coming to our church, as we maybe you invite someone to the church? And you're saying, okay, how are the other people here going to treat that person? Um, it does have application for us. We are to be a, we are to demonstrate ourselves as a as a gospel infused community that has this that has this gospel motivated hospitality where we have been we are people who have been shown mercy and we know how much we don't deserve the mercy we've been shown. So it overflows into mercy towards other into God's love demonstrating itself in our love reflecting that love towards others. That we need to embrace also that we need to embrace those who are not like us though. So even as we structure ourselves as a, as a church, that we demonstrate a gospel created unity where maybe we're, maybe it's like people who are older than us and we're more inclined to being with people who are our age or a people of different race or people of different economic status or the mentally ill or the handicapped that the gospel brings us all together. We need to demonstrate the unity that the gospel brings. We need to avoid cliques. Even though we might have some people in the church who are better, we're better friends with than others, and that's fine. Like, we still need to have that sort of unity. Avoid partial treatment. And, and this is contrary to the church growth wisdom. Because a church growth wisdom that says, how do you grow a church, would say... Have everyone be with people that they're most like. Make everyone comfortable. The gospel comes in and says, no, it's actually going to run over that worldly wisdom and say the gospel actually makes us one with people that, we're that are unnatural for us to be friends with. The church is to be a family of unnatural friends brought together because of the gospel. Even how we structure our church, though. So, so you notice there's this phenomenon in our world um, of our, our evangelical world where it seems like singles are marginalized and we've been pretty vocal about wanting to avoid that. We'll keep us honest on that. Um, we have our churches, you look at a church website and everything's about family ministry, family this, and every sermon is about family applications. Well, we want to make sure we're not marginalizing single people and treating them with partiality or even women in ministry. And we're a conservative church that understands differences between men and women, but also not making these illegitimate distinctions where women 
are basically just cast into being people who make brownies and babies, and that's pretty much all they do. Like, women can have a significant role in ministry. Or, like, we only theologically train the men, and we just kind of let the women, oh, it doesn't matter if you know how to read your Bible. Or those, even, I mean, okay, like, let's be real on this, too. Like, those struggling with sexuality and gender identity, where we show partiality when we say, your particular sin struggle is not welcome here. Like, everyone else's, but yours is too weird, and it makes us uncomfortable, so good luck with that. And you're not welcome in our church. Like, not condoning the sin, right? But your struggle is welcome here. We're a group of people who struggle. Okay, or we think of taking this to social dimensions as well. I don't think we need to limit this just to our application as a church. But even when we think about the rights of the vulnerable, like abortion, like we need to be active. And it's easy for us, I think, as young people, because the baby boomers were like all about that. And we kind of like, it's old hat. Like, okay, like we need to make sure we don't lose the, the evil that is abortion, right? That we're all about rights in our society. Our society is obsessed with rights. And yet there's a partial treatment of not granting rights to, to, to human beings that are in the womb. That somehow their rights don't matter. Okay? Or even as we've talked about, I've brought up the issue of race. And we think of all the stuff that's going on in our society with the treatment. We just think of the Black Lives Matter movement. Okay? And I'm not going to get into the ins and outs of dissecting like how we should think of that movement. Okay? I just frankly don't know enough. And that's not really my place. But our, well, I would say this. Our, there's clearly things going on um, that are just undeniable that the federal government has found out. And there's just issues, right? There's issues with the criminal justice system that we should be concerned with. And, we, and this, this text with partiality should push us to say we need to, we need to promote a society that doesn't have partial criminal justice. The Christian voice should be the loudest along those crying for just treatment. Okay, so like the book of Proverbs says, plead the case of the poor and needy. And I know we're really... I would say this, like, I know we're really eager to criticize the movement, like the Black Lives Matter movement and things like that, because of their, some of the methods we see, like their, their way of protesting, and just some stuff that we're not, we're not cool with. But in many ways, their existence, just the very existence of that movement, is a rebuke to us, because they're filling a void that we should have stepped into. We should have actually, they shouldn't even have to exist because we should have been speaking these things from the get-go. And so when we criticize their methods, their actual existence is a criticism, criticism of the church. And so I just want us to think about all these different areas. When it comes to partiality, the applications are so broad. The marginalized, our own prejudice to people, how we structure our church. Like, keep us honest here. Do, do some thinking. How can we be impartial in our church structure? And then how can we bring this to the level of our society? How can we be difference makers in our society? And at the end of the day, our motivation isn't guilt. It isn't just a mere sense of duty, although it is a duty. But you look at verse 12 where, where James says, this, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. This law of liberty, I think of this phrase, it sounds very Paul-like. Where in the Old Testament, there was a, we had the law that, that we weren't, it, God came in and he said, This is my standard for you. This is, this is what I expect from you, Israel. But their heart wasn't changed. 
So they were told what to do, but they weren't able to do it. Well, now with Christ and the new covenant, we still await a judgment from God according to his law and according to his standards, as we say. But now in the gospel and as partakers of Christ's new covenant, we no longer meet God's law like Israel, something that just condemns us and shines a spotlight on our inability to fulfill it, as Paul would say, this law of condemnation. But now we meet a law, as James says, a law of liberty. A law where God writes on our heart through his spirit, his very desire. A law of liberty whereby God's grace were actually liberated to obey his commands. That this is the vision for the church that we should have. That we're a people, because of God's grace, because of the gospel, because of the new covenant, because of the spirit writing these things on our hearts, that we can actually be transformed into a people who doesn't show partiality. We have the ability by God's grace to resist partiality. And so I want us to be motivated by God's mercy, that we've been shown mercy, we've been shown God's love, and so we need to be the type of people that show love to others. The problem with partiality is that we don't have a great enough awareness of our own need for God's mercy. And because God has poured out his grace on the, on the church, his intention is that we would be this love-saturated community that, ex- that exhibits um, or, or that, that exhibits no sense of partiality, that we would be a testimony to our surrounding culture of what it looks like um, where partiality is absent. Let's pray.